Welcome back to Fracktown Gumshoe, an audio mystery featuring Niccolo Fitzhugh. Based on the novels by Deborah K. Gaskill at DebraGaskillNovels.com. Season 1, Call Fitz, Chapter 10. I woke up stiff and sore on my waiting room couch Friday before the sun came up. I folded up my blanket and put it, along with my lumpy pillow, in the waiting room closet, sighing as I wondered how many more uncomfortable nights there would be on that cracked leather beast. My dying marriage needed to go on the back burner for now, however. I needed to focus on nailing Jacob Poole. Pinning Gina's death on him was my last hope to free Michael Atwater. Was there something in Poole's life that could connect him to Gina's murder? I hoped so. My cell phone beeped with a text message as I filled up my coffee pot in my office bathroom. It was Ambrosi. He subpoenaed Poole's phone at my request. Yesterday, Poole and his attorney willingly showed up, turned over the phone, and the tech people Ambrosi hired were looking into it. Not the actions of a killer. Maybe I shouldn't waste time looking into the actions of a man who was cooperating fully with the investigation then. But where should I turn? Reno Elliott didn't kill Gina. His demands on her were pretty fucked up and he was one shitty cop, but the bruises on Alicia Lennerman's arms proved that he wasn't around to kill Gina. But who was Jorge Rivera and what was his relationship with Elliott? Who shot him or whom did he shoot? And where was the body? Was Rivera tied to Monroe somehow? Who hired Rivera to push me off the case and why? I sipped my coffee as I flipped through the Outwater file, going through some basic facts one more time. Nothing jumped out at me. Nothing. There were steps outside my office door and today's newspaper slid through the mail slot. I shuffled over to pick it up. Two lead stories screamed for attention above the fold. On the left was a story about Gina's funeral, slated for this afternoon. Murder victim to be laid to rest. On the right were Dennis Lance's headshot and the story, Prosecutor Seeks Common Pleas Bench. Maybe I ought to look into Gina Cantalini. Maybe her past could lead me to a reason for her death. I scanned the story, which was basically a recap of the murder. Oddly enough, no next of kin was quoted or named. Why wasn't her family mentioned? Maybe my answers lay there. Her parents didn't live here, according to the stuff she told me when I'd arrested her in the waning days of my police career. She was just 18 and already a drunk, with the sad face of someone much older and much more defeated than someone three times her age. I picked her up trying to shoplift a bottle of whiskey. You got a family to come get you, I asked, trying to meet her sodden eyes in the cruiser's rearview mirror. They'll book you and then they'll release you since it's a misdemeanor. No. She wouldn't return my gaze. Instead, she watched the traffic go by, leaning her forehead on the window. Nobody? She didn't answer. Where do you live? On the street. Sometimes I stay at the women's shelter at the United Methodist Church. What a sad, sad story, I thought at the time. Wasn't there someone somewhere who cared for this kid. Now, seven years later, she was dead, and I couldn't find out why. Growing up, I couldn't recall anyone named Cantalini in the New Tivoli neighborhood, but that didn't mean anything. 
Like any kid, my world existed only in a three-block area where I was allowed to ride my bike. There could have been multiple Cantalini families living cheek by jowl in the duplexes that marked the edge of New Tivoli two blocks over. I would have never known. No one from my high school class had that moniker, but again, I didn't know if that was a, a married or a maiden name. For all I know, Gina could have been born a Smith, a Jones, or a Johnson. I had a week before the grand jury convened. I needed to get busy or Michael Atwater would be facing a murder trial. I needed to consult my ultimate resource on New Tivoli. I picked up my cell phone and punched in a number. In a few rings, she picked up. Ma? Hey, it's me, Niccolo. No, 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 I'm fine. No, there's no crisis. Yes, Gracie's fine. No, I, I haven't moved back yet. I'm calling early because I wanted to catch you before you went to Mass. I need to ask you something about a case. Can I come over later this morning? Okay, after Mass better? I'll see you then. The White House I grew up in sat on a small corner lot, circled by Ma's Floribunda roses. Since Dad's death a few years ago, she'd thrown herself into gardening replacing the tulips, the marigolds, and the petunias with the same roses she carried on her wedding day. Using Dad's life insurance money, she had the clapboard exterior covered in aluminum siding, since she wouldn't be around to paint it every five years, but left the interior of the house stuck in the mid-70s. I knocked, bracing for how she'd look when she came to the door. Ma was always thin, but these days had shrunken to a bird-like 95 pounds, her hump stealing more and more of what little height she had left. She pinned her gray hair in the same tight bun she'd worn the day Officer Aidan Fitzhugh pulled her over for a broken taillight in 1949. I knew I wouldn't have Maria Gallione Fitzhugh in my life much longer. Her appearance at the front door of that white house reminded me every time I saw her. Today was no different. She still had her black dress on from this morning's mass, but she'd taken off her orthopedic shoes and replaced them with pink fuzzy slippers. Niccolo, Niccolo, she sounded like she'd just gotten off the boat from the old country instead of being a lifelong Fawcettville resident. She reached up to hug me, then waved me inside. Come inside, come inside. I shut the oak door behind us and followed her through the dark living room and into the kitchen. A pot of pasta fagioli simmered on the old olive green stove. I see Sophia Armando brought you some soup, I said, taking a seat at the familiar dinner table. And it tasted just like merda. This is fresh. Ma spit into the stainless steel sink with disgust. Sophia Armando is the worst cook in the neighborhood. I threw hers out as soon as I tasted it. Why did you tell her she could bring that immondizia to my house? Coffee? I shrugged. There was never any sense arguing with Ma, no matter what the subject. Sure. She put a tiny cup of espresso in front of me and I loaded it up with sugar. I waited to speak until she shuffled over with her own cup and sat down across from me. Maybe I shouldn't have. So when are you and Gracie getting back together, she demanded. Her claw-like hand trembled slightly as she lifted her cup to her lips, her eyebrows arched. I don't know, Mom. What do you mean you don't know? She stopped sipping, gesturing wildly with her hands. I didn't come here to talk about Gracie. 
What do you mean you didn't come here to talk about your wife? What kind of husband are you? I get 20 grandchildren from your brothers and sisters, but the one son I tell everyone is my favorite, the one who follows in his father's footsteps, God rest his soul, I get niente, nothing. Ma, that's what happens when you decide you've got to wait until you're old enough to be a grandfather yourself before you get married. Ma, I'm not old enough to be a grandfather. Sure you are. Sophia Armando's daughter, remember her? The one you dated in high school? She got married right out of nursing school and had four children before Sophia was 55, the same age you are now. Thank God you didn't marry Barbara, though. She probably couldn't cook any better than her mother. Not that I would have tried to teach her. I mean, that's a mother's job to teach their daughters how to cook. I wouldn't have shared my marinara recipe with her anyways. She would ruin it. Ma, stop it. What do you want, then? Ma looked at me like I was being rude. Her white espresso cup clinked delicately on its saucer as she sat it down. I came to ask you if there were any Cantalinis that lived in the neighborhood. Cantalini, hmm. She tapped her index finger on the table. There was one family down near Puccini's, but they moved away by the time you were in eighth grade. They had a son, I think, and a daughter. You wouldn't have known them because the kids, they went to St. Rita's. I wanted you kids to have a good Catholic education, too. But with us living on a comp salary, that just wasn't possible. So we sent you to, to the city schools. That wasn't too bad. I mean, you got a football scholarship out of it, didn't you? Focus, Ma. Focus. Where did they move to? Ma just shrugged. How should I know? I'm trying to find information on the family of that girl who was murdered. Think, Ma. These folks could have been the victim's grandparents. If you can just give me a name, something to start with. Hmm. Let me see. The parents' first names, they started with an A, I think. Ma rested her chin on her hand, thankfully silent for the moment. Anselmo? No, that's not it. Adalberto. No, wait. Alberto. That's it. Alberto. The father was Alberto and the mother was Luisa. They came here after the war. The son's name was Brian and the daughter's name was Ava. There. She threw her hands up in the air triumphantly. I reached across the table and clasped her gray head in my hands, kissing her forehead. Thanks, Ma, I said, sinking back into my chair. What can I do to repay you? Your brothers all married idiots. You are the only one to marry a woman with brains, the only daughter-in-law I can hold a halfway decent conversation with. Go home and make things right with your wife. That's all I ask. Gina's funeral was held at one of the less classy funeral homes at the edge of Tubman Gardens. Susan Atwater was sitting with her two grandsons in the front row, dabbing at her eyes. Prosecutor Dennis Lance was sitting at the other end of the same row. After today's newspaper story, I didn't know if this was to assure the attendees of the hard work his office would do to convict her killer, or if it had morphed into a campaign stop. A small group of Fawcettville's rougher residents walked through, paying their respect to Gina's two boys and nodding at Susan Atwater. A few sat in the back rows, intending to stay for the service. When I was a cop, I spent a lot of time with these folks. These were the people who rode on Fawcettville's ragged edge, both legally and socially. 
men and women who worked with their hands and didn't use gloves, who woke up on Saturday morning hungover and without their weekly wages, if they had any to start with. Their clothes were stained and their steel-toed boots mud-caked, their faces lined with the cost and the dirt of their lives. Uneducated, unwashed, and uncouth, even for a Dago Mick like me, they would throw punches or shank someone at the first perceived slight. Many, like the Atwaters, were the hard-scrabble Appalachians who came to Fawcettville to work in the potteries and the mills. They brought with them their mountain fierceness, hard drinking, and clan loyalty. For whatever reason, they adopted Gina. I got in line to pay my respects to the deceased. Gina's face was plastered with pasty makeup and a silk scarf tied around her neck to hide the strangulation marks. I wondered how much work the undertaker had to do to repair the bullet wound in her chest. Susan Atwater left her grieving grandsons to stand beside me. Such a sad, sad story, I said softly. Does she have any family here? Susan shook her head. Just the kids. I took her elbow and steered her away from the casket in the line of mourners. I'm still working to free your son, I whispered. I found out the cop didn't do it. You sure? Susan's long, bony fingers picked at her sleeve. I'm sure. He was beating up his girlfriend at the same time Gina was killed, so he couldn't have done it. I need to ask you a couple questions. Susan sighed. Who claimed the body? Who paid for this funeral? I identified the body and found the funeral home. The bar where Gina worked took up a collection to pay for this. They came up with about half, but then supposedly some anonymous donor paid the rest. What do you mean supposedly? Susan shrugged. One of the folks from the bar told me he thought it was the prosecutor. Said he heard it from someone who worked for the funeral home. No prosecutor in his right mind would do that. For ethical reasons, if nothing else. Did you ask him if it was true? I'm not asking that bastard anything, she hissed. He wants to kill my boy. He wants the death penalty. I can't believe he had the nerve to even show up here. Canned organ music began to play through the speakers in the ceiling. My conversation with Susan ended as mourners began to take their seats. A preacher I didn't recognize, not that I knew who the priest at St. Rita's either, got up to lead the service. My thoughts raced and I barely listened as the service droned on. Could the rumor be right? Why would Dennis Lance pay for the funeral? Why would the prosecutor help pay for a murder victim's funeral if it wasn't to curry votes? How ethical could that be, especially in light of his formal declaration as a judge candidate? Well, probably not very ethical at all, considering he'd already declared he wanted to see Michael Atwater face the death penalty. An action like that, if, if it were true, would kill any conviction on appeal, or, or at least I would think it would. I'd have to ask Ambrosi. My opinion of Dennis Lance was changing, and not for the good. Susan Atwater had to be wrong. Had to be. If not, I had to ask what was going on in this town. Between Chief Monroe and the prosecutor, had everybody's ethics gone down the shitter? I stood as six mourners in black t-shirts and jeans, Walked Gina's now-closed casket down the aisle and out to the hearse. Slowly, the crowd shuffled out, a few of them stopping to hug Gina's boys or shake Susan's hand. A few stopped to talk to Lance. He made sure to look properly concerned and sincere, 
as any good candidate would. As the last of the mourners filed out, he approached Susan, his hand extended, looking like he was mining for more votes. Without a word, she turned on the worn heel of her shoe and, grabbing the boys by the hand, walked out. That concludes Chapter 10 of Season 1, Call Fits. Fracktown Gumshoe is read and produced by Scott H. Shelton at scottyboombox.com. Every week a new chapter will be released, so subscribe now on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Podbean. Or, if you can't wait to find out the ending, you can go by the book or the ebook right now at deborahgaskillnovels.com. Again, thanks for listening. <laughs>